Before we start the show, I just wanted to let you know that the Politics Girls store is now officially open with our first capsule collection. To check it out, you can go to politicsgirl.com store. Now, it took me a long time to do this because the project is named after me and I had a hard time getting my head around there being a store associated with it. But people kept asking for mugs and shirts and I finally thought, okay, the name might be mine, but the project of saving this country belongs to all of us. And that's what the merchandise represents. So I'm excited about this store now and I hope you'll take the opportunity to check out our initial offerings. I'm looking forward to future collaborations with pro-democracy people in the fashion space and to bring you some really cool choices. Maybe we'll even see you sporting your PG merch around town in the future. To check it out, go to politicsgirl.com store. And now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. I'm recording the podcast from Toronto for the next month. So if you're watching this rather than listening, I haven't lost my studio. It's just 3,000 miles away, what I would call a tough commute. But even though I'm in a place where I was born, I'm still thinking about the country I chose to live in and the troubles it faces. I know it's not a surprise if I tell you that something has gone awry with America, but particularly with the American Republican Party. I was recently on Rick Wilson's show, The Enemies List, and we were talking about how there's this ever-growing group of people who believe in democracy, from the people at the Lincoln Project and right-wing politicians like Liz Cheney, all the way to left-wing superstars like Bernie and AOC. But those people and everyone in between are not remotely the same ideologically. They wouldn't propose the same policies or favor the same positions. But right now, with the way mega-republicanism has taken over, we find ourselves on the same side in a kind of enemy-of-my-enemy kind of situation. But because we all believe in a functioning democracy, we all believe in the rule of law, and we all oppose the extremism the former Republican Party is embracing. So with that in mind, I thought it would be useful to back it up a bit and talk about how we got here. Because as I always say, we can't know where we're going unless we know where we've been. To join me in this conversation is Dara Starr-Tucker a social media commentator on race and cultural equity who over the past 18 months has become wildly successful at breaking down very complicated narratives and historical ideas, very similar to what I do with my rants, into these bite-sized digestible pieces. In less than two years, Dara has gained a loyal following of over a million people, with the majority of them following her work on TikTok, but can now be found on YouTube, Insta, Twitter. I'm having her as a guest because she just started a new series on what she calls Toxic Conservatism, in which she'll explore the history of modern conservatism and the movements, organizations, and people who have come to define it. I wanted you to hear from her directly because Dara's approach to social justice and political commentary is just a fantastic addition to the independent voices that are growing across America. With mainstream media more and more beholden to their corporate owners and the story those owners want to tell, I think those of us who want to know the truth are increasingly dependent on independent voices to really keep us in the know. Dara is one of those voices that I believe is really worth listening to. I'd also be remiss if I didn't tell you that Dara is, first and foremost, a singer-songwriter, an acclaimed vocalist who the Grammys have called a fighter for social justice wielding music as a bomb. Her video commentary and original songs have been featured on HBO, FX, Hulu, at the Martin Luther King Center, Oprah's Network, BET, and Ebony. To me, she's just an amazing influencer out here teaching all of us who care to listen the things we need to know. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, acclaimed vocalist and influential social media commentator, Dara Star-Tucker. Welcome, Dara. 
Thank you. Thank you so much, Lee. It's so good to be here. Thank oh. you for having me. Well, thank you for being here. I was saying in the introduction that you're quite a well-known singer and you have this new album coming out and you're doing live shows all over the country. But people like me found you on social media talking about things like unregulated capitalism and if America ever really atoned for slavery. So when you go to your social media feed, it feels like it's quite diverse, right? You're ranging everywhere from music to satire, but you always end up in my algorithm talking about social justice issues. And that's where I really came to admire your work. What made you start doing political social commentary? Um, well, I, I honestly vacillate a lot. Like you said, I, I do tend to be a little bit all over the place (laughs) Um, because I I just, I live wherever it feels right to live in that particular moment. So when I first entered the, the TikTok space or the online commentator space, I was really doing more, I mean, it was after uh, the 2020 election. So that's really the thing that prompted me to begin to speak out because I had really made a point to just, you know, I was, I am a singer by trade, as you said. And it was like, well, you know, I don't want to alienate these people. I sing jazz. And so a lot of those folks tend to be older, you know, not necessarily conservative, but a lot of them, you know, may not have been comfortable with me, um, you know, voicing their politics. Yeah. Yeah. Having crap to say about crap that's going on. So I'm like, well, you know, just play it safe. And I was definitely raised to be very, you know, very careful, very circumspect, very obedient. And just, I had to push through a lot, you know, to begin to, to speak out. I still do. Yeah. Um, but I'm understanding the importance of that more and more as time goes on. So like I said, the 2020 election and January 6th, I mean, those, that was the catalyst. Those were the catalysts for me to, to jump in this online space. And really, I, I felt like a lot of the conversation at that time, and even now, really um, kind of centered around race. It's like, hey, we have a lot to learn in this country. There's a lot that needs to be contextualized for people who, um, is after, right after the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor uh, killings and so many others. Um, and it was like, hey, there's there's education that's necessary. I'm just feeling like I'm seeing a lot of just, you know, ignorance. some of it's willful ignorance and some of it's like literally people have just not been educated properly yeah. about this. And there was a lot of education that I needed. And so a lot of that just compelled me to kind of push through those those barriers that I had personally against speaking out um, and just to, to raise raise my voice, you know. I totally understand. I started doing it for the same reason, just a little earlier than you. And it does take some time to put yourself out there and think, well, people are going to judge me for this, but I really think these are things that need to be said. I mean, I know I started on TikTok because I couldn't do nothing anymore. I couldn't say nothing anymore. And I was trapped inside my house during the pandemic and I'd already started a civics YouTube channel to try and explain politics to people. But as Mm -hmm. we were coming up on that 2020 uh, election and we'd had Donald Trump as our leader for four horrifying years, I just thought there's no way I can't get into this. People know, have to know why they can't vote for this man again. And it was actually my mm-hmm. husband who suggested I go on TikTok. TikTok was quite new at the time. I'm sure you remember it wasn't on my radar. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was basically just following him around the house ranting at him. And he was like, you know what? Like, I love your energy. You're a great person, but please put it somewhere else, right? Like it was just too much. And I thought, well, where the heck am I supposed to put it? And so we ended up putting a phone in our kitchen window and I would just talk directly to the phone. And people are always like, how did you think of the kitchen? I was like, I didn't think of the kitchen. I literally put it down where it was at Mm -hmm. the same level as my face. And that just happened to be the kitchen. And, Mm -hmm. you know, my initial videos, I was in my pajamas talking off the top of my head. But over time, 
that grew to not only me being dressed, but also like highly researched because I realized mm -hmm. there was so much people needed to know. And there was yeah. so much, like you said, that I didn't know. And I thought, mm -hmm. yeah, if I have this question and I'm someone that likes to pay attention and is sort of nerdy about this stuff, I'm sure everyone else needs to know it too. I'm sure they're like, yeah, I don't understand how the debt ceiling works. I don't, I don't know what that means. Mm -hmm. So I think these are conversations we need to be having and we need to be doing it in a more conversational way. And frankly, in a more authentic way that people can really dive in and get really engaged in it. You know, we don't get that from the eight talking heads in little tiny squares screaming at each other on media. And we don't get that from our political operatives who are out here trying to get elected or begging us for money. And people want to know what they can do and they want context and they want facts. And that's yeah. the kind of work I think you're offering people. And obviously it's taken off, right? You have almost a million followers on TikTok now, well over yeah. a million cross-platform. People love what you mm -hmm. do. You have this point of view and this voice and you work in truth and facts, which are things we desperately need, right? <laughs> and we need people out here questioning the status quo and asking these hard and important questions. And these are the kind of conversations that are going to be essential for us as a country if we're ever going to, first of all, grow past this hideous moment we're in, but mm -hmm. also to be a better country moving forward. So yeah. all that being said, uh, people should definitely be out here checking out your work. But today I was hoping we could just focus on your newest project, which is this idea of toxic conservatism, right? Mm -hmm. Now, as I understand this, this is a year-long project for you. So yes. what is it that you plan to explore in this series? Well, as I said in that introdu introductory video, right. I really, you know, I grew up in a very conservative environment. My parents were not deeply political, but I grew up in the evangelical church, oh. charismatic sort of evangelical non-denominational environment. So think like Joel Osteen and just all of the big kind of mega church environments that you see. We were not quite so fancy with it back when I grew up in the 80s and 90s. But that's, you know, that's that's where I grew up. Reagan was the first president that I remember. And he was he was worshipped. He was idolized by these people. You know, the, the reason I really wanted to address that is because, you know, I feel like this, this is we're, we're still in that era of Reagan. This is really where we are. We're still in that uh, the, the era of what was ushered in when I was a child. And so I have witnessed this firsthand. It wasn't quite as toxic as it is now when I was growing up. Um, and it was really more of a fringe element at that time. And it was becoming mainstream. It was becoming popularized. But I think now what we've seen this sort of morph into is something uh, very insidious and it's quite dangerous. Um, and it's very, it's very disturbing, frankly, for me to, to observe, you know, the progression of this movement from the time that I was a child to now Yeah, and what this has kind of turned into. And uh, it's, it's, it's atrophied into something, you know, I think it started out um, very hopeful and, and, and uh, optimistic, interestingly enough. I remember when I was a child, it was, um, you know, it was something that people wore on their sleeve, like, oh, yeah, I'm a born again Christian. And it was like, you know, Bob Dylan came out with a, a gospel album and Jimmy Carter professed to be a Christian. And, you know, it just was seen as something that was very positive in certain circles. And I think now we're starting to see um, really the very, very seedy underbelly, just the, the ugly side of what a lot of that really means. And just I've witnessed it. Yeah. firsthand, up close and personal. This has been my actual life. I'm not observing it from afar or poking at it with a stick. It's like, who are these people that I grew up with? What is this influence that, that, it, that informed my life 
Right. So that's my reason for wanting to invest it in it as deeply as I have. And of course, I've you know had to make a, a tremendous progression in my adult life to really understanding like what what is this? What are, what are the roots of this? I grew up in Christian schools. Christian schools became very popular due to uh, racial segregation in the early 70s. That's why that movement broke out. That's why all these Christian schools started popping up. So I am a product of this. And uh, that toxicity is something that I have to continually be aware of now that I've sort of gone through my own like deconstruction process and like, you know, have really just pulled away. And now I can look at that with a bird's eye view and think like, wow, this is some really, this is some really insidious kind of, um, really seedy stuff. Yeah. And so you've, you're sort of inspired to take a deep dive into it. I mean, as you say in your introduction to the whole series, you know, like throughout the history of the United States, there's always been those people who have been opposed to societal progress, whether Mm -hmm. they wrap it in the bow of Christianity or they wrap it in the bow of, you know, conservatism in general, but there's always been people who have worked to uphold the status quo at any cost. And as you point out, there's always been people willing to fight to the death to hold on to power, power that they mm-hmm. perceive as their God-given right. And you point out yes. that some of those battles have been legislative, like Brown v. Board of Education and the integration of schools, and some have been constitutional, like the 13th Amendment and the ending of chattel slavery and or the 19th Amendment and giving women the right to vote. And some have even made their way to the battlefields, like the Civil War, right? But there's always been people fighting against progress, people who see human rights for others as somehow taking something from them rather than what it really is, which is just sharing power amongst the people. And Mm -hmm. your online commentary often includes things like historical photos to help us understand the point you're making. And you had one in one of your videos that was from the 60s with white protesters carrying signs that say things like stop race mixing and race mixing is communism, which of course communism is always the buzzword we use to scare people, even when it absolutely makes no sense to be using it. And you point out in your work that when it comes to America's conservative past, political organizations have always been at the forefront of this strategy to remain Mm -hmm. dominant. And again, to remain where they believe is their God-given right at the top, right? And you kind of remind us in your work that there have always been these organizations and movements and political action committees and ideologies and demagogues and what you call master manipulators Mm -hmm. operating just beneath the surface of America to keep that status quo, that straight, white, rich Christian man at the top. But not only just keeping that alive, but making sure it flourishes. So talk to yeah. me about some of these organizations and movements that you're going to be delving into in the in your year-long uh, investigation. Well, I alluded to one just a minute ago um, when I was talking about Christian schools. Having grown up in Christian schools, um, there was a man named Paul Waverick, um, who I definitely <laughs> want to talk about. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure you know about. Huge um, in, in the yeah. anti-abortion movement, right? That was really yes. unbelievable. Yes. He's a Republican or was a Republican operative or, or conservative operative, I'll say. Um, that kind of got his start in the 60s and was trying to find, you know, the issue that was going to mobilize people and how can I, you know, coalesce the the, the moral sort of um, wing of this party. And he tried, he floated uh, abortion at that time. Um, but until Roe v. Wade came along, that really was not a hot button issue. I mean, he tried a lot of different issues. But when the school segregation, because Brown versus Board of Education, that's when schools became desegregated. It was officially ruled that, de- that segregation was unconstitutional and was damaging to both black children and white children. That was 1954. 
but really it wasn't until the late 60s until fully every, you know every part of the country was required to desegregate their schools all a lot of those laws did not fully kick in for another you know almost 15 years we're slow on the uptake we're still slow on the uptake <laughs> Yeah, by the late 1960s, it was like, you know, places like rural Mississippi. And, you know, even though they, some of them may not even had that many black uh, black people in their towns, but just the fact that they had to remove these segregation kind of clauses from their their charters or whatever. Um, there was a, a place called Fulton County in Mississippi uh, that absolutely refused to desegregate. And they shut down their public schools and opened up four private schools. This is in the late 60s, like 60, I don't know, 67, 69 or something like that, and opened up private schools so that they could, you know, have this requirement of like, we do not allow black students. And it was just, you know, an, an absolute defiance of the law. And and so, you know, groups, uh, I, I don't know if it was the um, Americans, the Civil Liberties Union came in and said, hey, you know, this is this is against the law. You're not able to do this, even in with private schools. And Richard Nixon, who was the president at the time, had to come in and say, you know, the Justice Department had to come in and sue and say, you cannot do this. And so that's the issue that Paul Weyrich uh, came in and launched a whole um, campaign to say, basically, you're violating our religious uh, liberties. These are private schools, they're Christian schools, and we should be able to segregate if we want to. That was the issue that mobilized uh, the moral right to start getting more involved in politics. And so he and Jerry Falwell started the Heritage Foundation and, you know, the moral majority came along a little bit later and all of these these types of groups. And of course, you know, pre that we had the John Birch Society um, who were there to basically say, you know, to fight uh, integration. A lot of these groups really started with that foundation of wanting to fight uh, integration. So it really wasn't the abortion issue that that launched this whole movement. It was segregation. No, abortion was just something they could latch onto that people yeah. could get behind. You know, you put it really well uh, in one of your pieces where you said it's it's like there's always been this army of worker bees who are strategizing yes. how to best exploit the hopes and dreams and fears and ignorance and prejudices of yes. the electorate to get and keep what they want. So it's not yeah. really what's best for the people. It's about how they can get the people to do what's best for them, right? Right. And you're out here and you're talking and you're going to talk about things that people really should know about, like the Dixiecrats and the Southern Strategy and the John Birch Society, like you said, and then people like Strom Thurmond and Paul Manafort and Roger Stone and Steve Bannon and citizen activists. You're talking about people like Phyllis Shafley, who fought against the women's rights movements, and Ginny Thomas, who's like mm -hmm. a current sitting Supreme Court justice's wife, who fought against the peaceful transfer of power. And now, yes. of course, we have groups like Moms for Liberty, who claim to be yes. for parents' rights, but are really just white nationalists with better PR. So right. this, <laughs> I mean, really, so this project will be talking about the history of what we see in the modern conservative movement. And you'll be doing these deep dives into conservative think tanks and places like you said, the Heritage Foundation, and then the newer ones like Moms for Liberty and this rise mm -hmm. of parents' rights, which they're really using now, which is just another way of segregating people and saying you yep. belong and you don't belong. And you're going to be looking into political figures. I think like people like Harry Inslinger and Ronald Reagan and Lee Atwater yes. and diving into these people and how all these groups have impacted the trajectory of conservatism and why these groups that seem like they're from the past really still matter today. 
Yeah, they absolutely do. I mean, the John Birch Society is they still have a presence on YouTube. And I know this because I went to go and investigate. Oh, let's see what, you know, what went on way back a long time ago with this archaic group. And they are there and they are putting their message out and still attempting to sanitize it as just being wholesome, hearty American values. And I'm like, don't you see yourself? Are you not self-conscious about, you know, the history of what even this, this name stands for? Um, but yeah, I, I, what, what really strikes me when, when you start to investigate a lot of these, these groups, which always have just very, again, wholesome, just patriotic, you know, American is apple pie names. There's always something about freedom or liberty or, you know, the American way and justice. And it, you know, it, it, they, they try to make it just sound as, as, pure and as lily white as as possible i guess it is in a way lily white yes it's but, hitler youth lily white <laughs> <laughs> it's just like yeah when you start to really investigate um one thing that really starts to jump out at you and, and you really can't avoid for very long is the money where the money is coming from these are moneyed groups i mean even a group that i I did a a video on one of the first videos i did was called freeway flags and it was just about these giant confederate flags that are popping up on the sides of freeways all over the place especially in the south and when you really start to trace like well where where are these coming from who's paying for them who's paying for this then you start to understand you know this is the sons of confederate veterans and there are some big pockets behind these groups and there are you know in, in certain cases a couple of billionaires who have decided to funnel money to political action committees that folks can donate to anonymously. And, you know, no one has to know exactly who, who is funding these groups, but there are really just, there, there are really a couple of, of primary sources of income uh, where a lot of the money is, is, is coming from. Online activists, journalists, I put that in quotation marks, um, and news organizations, they're really, it's just a small handful of people who are really at the heart of, of providing the primary funds for, for these groups. Yeah. And as you point out, I mean, in one of your pieces, for anyone that's been paying attention, or even if you know very little, it's pretty obvious that something in our political discourse has changed quite drastically yeah. over the past 10 years. This right-wing extremism has really been dialed up to an eleven. And as you say, it's almost as if there was a singular event in our recent past (laughs) that represented some kind of sea change about how white conservatives saw their position in the political landscape. And what we're seeing now is the blowback of that. And obviously, you're talking about the election of one Barack Hussein Obama. Mm -hmm. Um, But like, talk to me a little bit about that, because obviously that was a catalyst for people thinking, oh, my gosh, maybe my position of power is not as secure as I thought it was. And it's his election that really sort of like snowballed effect this mm-hmm. this extremism and this toxicity that you're talking about that we're seeing now. Yeah, I think that that event woke a lot of people up, even though Barack Obama did get a lot of support from, from white folks in this country. Yeah. And he wouldn't have been able to be elected if he hadn't. Uh, but I think that something something shifted there was, as you said, a sea change that happened when he was elected because it was like, you know, all of a sudden there was this reality that was in front of people that had never been there before. There was the reality of of potentially, I mean, you hear a lot now about, uh, what is it called? The replacement theory. Oof, great replacement theory. Yeah. yeah. Tucker loves the it. Idea. Yeah. The idea that, um, 
you know, white people after, uh, you know, I don't know how long it is. It was 2050. I don't know if it's been pushed forward. I've heard that that's, you know, the timeline of that has literally been pushed forward by our, our yeah, I think it's 2038. Policy. Now is it 2038? Yeah. Okay. Where white people will no longer be the majority. Yeah. I think that that's, you know, that's, that's a stark reality. And there are people behind the scenes stoking fears, legitimately stoking people's fears yeah. um, about a minority takeover in this country. And I think that, that Barack Obama's presidency woke a lot of people up to that and it allowed people to start saying the quiet part out loud. I think there was, there was a, a certain agreement that we're just, we're not going to worry about it too much before that happened. And I think when his presidency happened, um, just there, a a lot of the, the true fears about that, I think came to the forefront and we started hearing a frankness even before Trump really became super prominent, you know, and was just right there in your face. We started hearing a lot more conversation around, um, that, you know, that, that sentiment of, of just being replaced um, and I, and I think it just scared a lot of people. Yeah. Well, I mean, you point out in your own work, I mean, I'm basically just quoting your own work back to you, you know, like for a group of people that includes people whose entire will has been to keep the racial war alive and well for their own benefit for decades, Obama was this major thorn in their side, not only because they didn't want to see a black man as president, but because it didn't fit into the narrative, right? Because for years, White Christian conservatives have kind of been telling people either quietly or out, out loud that, you know, you might be poor, you might not have an education, you might not have the life you were promised or imagined or have access to the American dream that we really thought you would, but at least you're not, you know, yes. these people, at least you're not <laughs> black, right? Being right. black would be the worst, right? So at least you're white. You may have everything else not going for you, but at least you're white. And then along mm-hmm. comes this brilliant man who just happens to be black with his brilliant family and his traditional values and his excellent education. And it becomes a lot harder to keep telling that story, right? It becomes a lot harder Mm -hmm. to sell the story because how can you believe that you are better than the black man when this black man is categorically better than most of us, right? Like (laughs) the narrative is no longer makes sense. And that's a real problem for Mm -hmm. people who are trying to keep that racial war alive. You know, far right conservatives know that the poor black man and the poor white man have way more commonality than mm-hmm. they do to the rich, right? And if they realize they're not enemies and they band together and they say, yes. hey, we would like yeah. to have a better life, then the ruling class is going to be in serious jeopardy, right? So the only thing they can do to keep that from happening, to keep everyone who's been sort of kept down from looking up and going, hey, what are you doing to us, is for to keep pushing that greater than, lesser than narrative about color. When Rocket Money approached us as a sponsor, I had to look up what it was. And aside from something that would help me clear out my inbox, I can't think of anything I needed more than an app that would find the subscriptions I'd forgotten about and cancel them for me. How many things have you signed up for that you don't remember? Did you watch a show so you signed up for a free seven days and then you forgot you signed up? You wanted to try a yoga app and then didn't notice it was a reoccurring payment? Do you know how much those forgotten subscriptions really cost? Most Americans think they're spending around $80 a month on subscriptions, when the actual total is closer to $200. If you don't know exactly how much money you're spending every month on subscriptions, then you need Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. Over 3 million people have used Rocket Money, with the average person saving up to $720 a year. So stop throwing your money away. Cancel unwanted subscriptions and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash politicsgirl. 
That's rocketmoney.com slash politicsgirl. Rocket Money will quickly and easily find your subscriptions, and if you don't want to pay for them anymore, just hit cancel. It's that easy. rocketmoney.com slash politicsgirl. So I'm up in Toronto staying with my dad while my son's at camp. And if I ever needed a walking, talking endorsement for AG1, it's my 80-year-old father who takes it every day. My dad has been taking AG1 since I got it for him almost a year and a half ago. And not only does he feel terrific, he looks amazing. Like he physically looks better. I don't know what it is. I can't even be sure what it is. But the only thing we have changed in his lifestyle and diet is the addition of AG1. His pores look smaller. His stomach feels better. He literally said he loves this stuff and he just feels so much better on it. I can't tell you how much better that makes me feel as a grown child who lives far away to know he is out here feeling good with a healthy gut, a boost in his energy, strong immune system support, and ready to take on the day. There's a ton of supplements out there, but if you want something that will really make a difference, I recommend AG1. Even to get for an aging relative. I mean, my dad is actually thriving. And if it can do this for an 80-year-old, what can it do for you? Just one scoop and a cup of water every morning gives you the foundation of nutrients you need for your day with 75 high-quality vitamins, probiotics, and whole food-sourced ingredients. I can't think of another daily routine that pays off as well as AG1, and I wouldn't give it to my family if I didn't really trust it. So if you're looking for a simple, effective investment in your health or the health of a loved one, try AG1 and get five free AG1 travel packs and a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Go to drink ag1.com slash politics girl. That's drink ag1.com slash politics girl. Check it out. Today's podcast is brought to you by Miracle Made Sheets. Working with Miracle Made, I've learned a lot of information about how much bacteria sheets actually have on them, which is why we often get acne or allergy or stuffy noses from our beds. And to be honest, having this kind of information is kind of gross. But knowing that there are products like Miracle Made that offer whole lines of self-cleaning, eco-friendly bedding like sheets and pillowcases and comforters that prevent up to 99% of bacteria and require three times less laundry feels like a pretty good trade-off to me. Miracle Made bed sheets use silver-infused fabrics that prevent up to 99.7% of bacterial growth. And they're also super soft and comfy, soft and luxurious without the high price of other soft and luxurious sheets. So stop sleeping in bacteria and sleep clean with Miracle. Go to trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl to try Miracle Made Sheets today. And whether you're buying them for yourself or as a gift for a loved one, if you order today, you can save over 40%. And if you use our promo code politicsgirl at checkout, you will get three free towels and save an extra 20%. So upgrade your sleep today with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl and use the code politicsgirl to claim your three-piece towel set and save over 40% at checkout. That's trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl. So I was happy that our new sponsor, Real Paper, was using bamboo instead of trees to make toilet paper. I love the idea of not cutting down forests for us just to toss the remnants into our water system. I hated the idea of cutting down tens of thousands of trees a day just to supply America with toilet paper. But I was genuinely concerned that a product I loved conceptually might not be one I could honestly tell you I loved literally. And then I got my first delivery of real paper. Look, full transparency, I'm a bit of a toilet paper snob. I like fancy, plushy, even aloe laced toilet paper. So when I tried real paper, I was shocked that it didn't feel like a downgrade. In fact, when you account for the environmental difference, it might actually be an upgrade. 
Real paper is shipped free to my door in plastic-free packaging, and you can schedule a subscription so it comes exactly when you need it and you never have to worry about forgetting it at the store. Or, quite frankly, carrying it home because not everyone has a car and those packages are huge. And Real Paper is partnered with One Tree Planted. So with every box of Real that you buy, it funds reforestation efforts across the country. So while other toilet paper companies cut down trees, Real is actively trying to replant them. If you head to realpaper.com slash politicsgirl and sign up for a subscription using my code politicsgirl, you'll automatically get 30% off your first order and free shipping. That's R-E-E-L-P-A-P-E-R.com slash politicsgirl or enter the promo code POLITICSGIRL to get 30% off plus free shipping. Make a change for good this year and switch to real paper. Real, it's paper for the planet. I think you put it really well. No matter what they did, the country has increasingly become more diverse, right? Like mm-hmm. it, over time, it just has. You yes. believe that the Obama election was a, a signal shift for many conservative minds where they mm-hmm. kind of felt like they were always sort of reasonably secure, but. Now it felt like they weren't as safe as they thought they would be, that these allowances that they were giving to liberals, you know, were fine as long as it didn't affect their way of life. And then conservatives kind of always thought they would be dominant, right? They might not always get their way, but they would always be kind of the top dog. And now that was being called into question that maybe they weren't going to be always dominant. And that was a scary and real problem for them, Right. which I think is what you're saying, what led us to Trump, right? And he's the reaction to that fear. Yeah, I think there was a certain amount of, you know, there's a certain amount of, of of just patting patting themselves on the back. And again, these are the types of people that I grew up with. Right. You know, I have my father was always everybody's, you know, black black best friend. You know, that they could point to and say <laughs> Where they said, "I have a black friend. It was your dad." <laughs> like, <"Who's> that guy. <laughs> Yeah, his name was Doyle. Yeah, he was just an affable guy and just made everybody feel comfortable regardless of what color you were. And so he was that that one that just probably made them feel a little bit too comfortable. Uh And, you know, a a lot of them kind of, you know, they were lulled into a sense of like, hey, you know, I'm not like my parents. I'm not the one that's that's holding up inward signs and trying to stop black people from registering for, you know, for school. And or we're not hosing black people down in the streets. We're doing pretty well. You know, this whole struggle with race or whatever, it's a thing of the past. It was an issue back then, but it's not that now. Right. And I think they were lulled into a sense of security and just comfort around the power dynamics that existed. It's like they, you know, we've given them a little bit of ground and we're used to seeing black people from time to time in the workplace. Or maybe there's one black person that lives on my street, um, a few black people in my church and and it's fine and we're okay. And we've settled into this easy sort of comfortable place and, and it's fine. And then so for someone to come in and go, no, possibly the, the power dynamic itself is going to be turned on its ear because you've maybe given up too much ground. You've allowed for too much, you know, and not to mention all, you know, the other myriad of, of issues around, you know, LGBTQ issues and, you know, women's issues and yeah, whatever. All this othering um, coming into yeah. your safe white space. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We're, we're kind of the power dynamic is shifting now. It's like, oh, well, that's you know, this is uncomfortable. You know, they're not just a few black people on my street and a few black people in the church and somebody I can refer to as my, you know, my black best friend. But now black people, there's a, I have a black boss or I might a black person might take my child's place at at Harvard or at the school of their choice. And, you know, that kind of thing. It's like when when I feel a threat that is potentially taking something away from me. 
Um, I may not have, my children may not have the position in society that I have or the, the assumption of dominance in society that I grew up with, that assurance that I grew up with. Well, now things are different. Now things have changed. And this is something we have to fight with right. everything we have. And you say that toxic conservatism speaks to that, right? It's what you call the political binary, which you think is very mm-hmm. unfortunate language. So talk to me, talk to me about political binary. Well, it's, it's, it's that sense. It's someone has to lose in order for me to win. Right. A, what, this is a fight to the death and one side is going to come out victorious and another side will be absolutely vanquished and defeated. So we give up no ground. Right. You know, we are not here to negotiate. We're not here to be reasonable. Um, you're either with us or you're against us. That kind of just absolutism right. that does not allow for any sort of true discourse um, in, in the political sphere at all. It's really it's it's moral battles and it's it's a fight to the death. Yeah, and it's it's and- it's featured as a war, as a battle, as yes. my enemy. The Democrats are enemies. The liberals are my enemy. They're here yeah. to kill us, like that kind of idea. And as you say, they fight the idea of wokeness without a clue of what it actually means. They ban mm-hmm. CRT without a clue of what it actually was. This political binary, which I think is a really great way to put it, is the vilification of kind of any organization or group or person that would attempt to advocate for the rights of anyone who would complicate their worldview, right? Or would make them cede any element of power. And as Mm -hmm. you point out in your work, they often do this with a Bible in their hand and a firearm Mm -hmm. in the other, much like Mm -hmm. the Islamic extremists they claim to be so diametrically opposed to, right? So Mm -hmm. you include a poster in one of your pieces um, that says, God guns and guts made America free. And let's keep it that way. And then there's this like mean, tough looking bald eagle who's made of the American flag and the American flag is flying in the background behind him and he's looking out at the world. And that's kind of how toxic conservatism is to me. They see themselves as this patriotic hero in a battle. And when in reality, it's kind of this sort of small minded, scared behavior that makes them act like bullies that they mm-hmm. just happen to wrap in the flag, right? And I, mm-hmm. I find that really interesting. And it goes back to what you were saying about the fact that this country has made this ideological shift, right? We have the majority of us, the ever-growing majority, are no longer white, straight right. Christians. And even if you right. are, like me, I'm a white, straight Christian, right? We're equally as supportive of people who don't fit into that box. Mm-hmm. And that reality of this changing ideological makeup of the country makes people, you use a great word, panicky, right? And we know when people make decisions in a state of panic, they often make the wrong decisions, right? Because people who are in fear are reactionary, they're aggressive. And this is why conservatism tries to amp up the fear, keep them afraid, keep them going. Because that's sort of where modern conservatism movement is right now. You call it the panic era. Yeah, I think, you know, again, when when they feel that the power dynamic has shifted and you suddenly feel like uh, the things that were a given, the things that you took for granted are maybe not going to be able to be taken for granted anymore, or at least for your children, they are not going to be able to take for granted the things that that you did. Right. And suddenly they will be in the minority. And I think, you know, a lot of it stems from, it's sad to say, the fear that maybe uh, that majority will begin to treat white people in the way that white people have treated minorities in this country. It's the fear 
that the thing that you have done to others will now be done to you, that you will not be in the position now to hold the power to stave that off. Um, I've been studying a lot about Lincoln and, and Thomas Jefferson and their views on slavery. And they, they, you know, they were very contradictory in how they approached that issue, you know, as, as, as certainly opposed, were. personal yeah. beliefs, which were, <laughs> they were very much against the institution of slavery, but um, very much hesitant when it came to actually abolishing it or taking a stand um, in that way. Uh, but one of the speeches that Lincoln gave to a group of black people that visited the White House was, you're going to have to repatriate. We're going to have to export all of you. If we let you go, if we free you, we are going to have to basically colonize you elsewhere because you will never forget the wrong that was done to you. We will never get to the point where you will be able to let go of those grievances. You will remember, your generations will remember. And this is always going to be an issue of tension between black and white people. And that's what Abraham Lincoln said when he was trying to convince black people to basically self-deport. Yeah, well, and if people don't know this, Lincoln originally was thinking that if the slaves were freed, they should probably go elsewhere. They should probably not stay in America. And it was kind of his relationship. And tell me if you think I, if I'm getting this wrong, it was sort of his relationship and his getting to know Frederick Douglass and their their friendship and that he kind of changed his point of view on that. And mm -hmm. by the end of his life, he was talking about, you know, uh, voting rights for yeah. black Americans. Yeah, that's that's what got him killed right there. That speech <laughs> right after emancipation when he made a speech uh, saying that he felt like a, a certain groups of black people, if they were well educated or had served in the military, should be able to actually have full citizenship and yeah. should should be able to vote. And, uh, and then he went John to the Wilkes theater. Was, yeah, John Wilkes <laughs> Booth was in the crowd that day and said that he was going to get him, and he did. Um, yeah, so a lot of that sort of grievance, um, I think, you know, legitimately. Um, is, is still here. I think there are a lot of white folks that are just plain um, scared of what would potentially happen if this great replacement ever, you know, ever happened, that their position in, in the culture might not be um, secure at all. So I think, you know, to, to lean on this idea of this being our America, meaning, meaning white folks believe that this is our country. This is something that belongs to us. We, this is our birthright. It's something we should not allow to be, to be violated. We should not give up ground to anyone over something that is ours. And this is where, you know, slogans like make America great again, which really started with Reagan and not Trump. Um, those kinds of slogans come in where it's a very, you know, it's a very nationalistic. It's really shifted from something that is that could be legitimately seen as patriotic into something that's truly nationalistic, which is, you know, now we're getting into the sort of danger zone of really teetering. I hate to use extreme words like fascism, but fascism is, is literally it's literally what's um, happening. It's, it's the most efficient word. Yeah. It's literally what is it? Stoking up feelings of patriotism, and my blood is tied to this soil. This is my land, and uh, my feelings about the country are directly tied to my feelings of, um, you know, my my birthright, and you know that kind of thing. That sort of um, really racial, racially based um, patriotism, right. nationalism. Nationalism. That is what fascism really is at its heart. Um, and that's, that's, that's where the toxicity comes, comes in. And I know, you know, I just did a video on how words like socialism and communism are thrown out there constantly with regard to liberals, but <sighs> you know, I, 
I don't think we're using the word fascism enough when it comes to these sort of hyper conservative movements, because that's that's really what we're dealing with. One of my degrees is in German studies. And so when people try to come along and say, you know, this is Hitler and that's yeah. Hitler. It's like, well, first of all, stop throwing Hitler, stop evoking his name every other opportunity you get. Um, but when it comes down to it and really understanding what allowed that movement to rise up in in Germany, um, we're, we're dealing with a lot of similarities, unfortunately. And I have German friends who have pointed that out. They're like, this is scary. What you all are dealing with right now, this looks really familiar and we need you all to get it together. Yeah. This is, this is freaky. A hundred percent. And I think it also goes back to what we are saying about panic. You know, people, they're not thinking when you, when you're in a panic, you don't think clearly. And I think there's so many people that you think, are you not listening to what you're saying, because it really does sound very reminiscent of 1930s Germany, right? But it's not even just racial, right? It's like, it. this plays into people's reaction when you ask them to make any sort of adjustment, you know, like the pushback we've seen on pronouns, right? Or school mm -hmm. curriculums. And like, right. yeah, you have to adjust. The world is becoming more inclusive. And so therefore, mm -hmm. so will our speech and what we learn. But people are like reactionary to it. Oh, this is terrifying. And I can't do this. I had someone tell me recently that they didn't understand why things always had to be changing. And I was like, what do you mean? And they said, I don't understand why I say I'm not allowed to say master bedroom anymore. Like, what's that about? Did it, does everything have to go back to slavery? And I was like, well, you know, actually master bedroom doesn't go back to slavery. It, you know, <laughs> master does come from, you know, their, master does have a connotation in American life, but master bedroom actually comes from England, you know, with the mm -hmm. master of the house and being head of the household. Right. Les Miserables does a whole song about master of the house, right? Like, it's mm -hmm. the head of household. And I, I was talking to a woman who's a business owner and a single person who lives by herself. And I said, actually, why would you call your bedroom, you know, the master bedroom? You're a single woman. You're, you know, stand by yourself. And when she's like, well, what am I supposed to call it? And I said, the primary bedroom. Primary bedroom. Right. And yeah. she was like, oh, well, that's not hard. <laughs> but her initial thought was like, no, I can't. Why would I have to change yeah, it? Why does everything have to come back to this? Like, I did. And it was so reactionary. And all I had to do was say to her, like, you know, actually, it's just from this. And here's another word for it. And she was like, oh, well, that makes much more sense. Right. Like, yeah. and I thought yeah. sometimes people just need to get their feelings out to get to the other side of something mm -hmm. um, because they're just resenting it just for being asked to talk about it or think about it. And I mm -hmm. think this toxic Republicanism, this panic level is keeping people in the reaction rather than mm -hmm. the next step, which is like the understanding, right? Because you point out that panic doesn't necessarily equal powerless, right? Like these mm -hmm. people who are panicked are also people that have quite a bit of power in our society. Right. Like, right. you know, we're seeing it all with Mums for Liberty right now and these new swaths of organizations and movements and PACs coming down the pipeline to exploit that perceived powerlessness you know, and that is people like Ron DeSantis and Ben Shapiro and Charlie Kirk and Turning Point USA and white nationalists like Nick Fuentes being at the, you know, Mar-a-Lago and Candace Owens and Jordan Peterson and even lawmakers like Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? Like they're combining themselves with hate groups like Patriot Fund and Proud Boys and people that claim Jews will not replace them. And no one is going, holy hell, like why are these people interacting and why aren't we saying something about it? And I think it's just this idea of getting back to the good old days. I mean, I have a really good German friend too, who was often on this show. He's a Georgetown professor named Thomas Zimmer, and he always calls it weaponized nostalgia, right? This idea mm. that we're not mm -hmm. going down without a fight. We're going to take our country back or we're going to die trying, but mostly I would just wish you guys would die, right? Like <laughs> it'd be better if it was just you, if we could just make you go away. And I find right. that I mean, I don't know how you can call it anything other than toxic, 
Mm-hmm. It's a poison yeah. for our whole society. Yeah, it absolutely is. I think that the allure of it, I think, uh, particularly in the age of, of Trump, and I don't even like saying his name, to be honest, um, but it's hard to have a conversation like this without evoking his name. So, <laughs> But I think particularly in the age of Trump is the allure is there is power, there is strength in fighting back, in not simply taking this lying down. Right. He is perceived as a strong man because he is a loud mouth and he'll just say whatever's on his mind and there's absolutely no no finesse in it and there's you know he's not a politician and he'll just say this in this very you know just clunky and unserious way but there's a certain perception of i mean it's 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 allowing them to sort of get out like you said some of them just need to be able to vent and just get it out. I need to be able to say, I am angry at this. I am scared, which is what it really is. It's really fear more so than it is anger, but being able to express it as anger and, you know, absolute vigilance. And we're going to, we're going to fight back. That feels better than being scared. Right. And so I think, you know, when you have people who are just, you're, you're just seeing, you're seeing an ugliness now that we didn't see previously. And is, is it worse than what we were dealing with, you know, in, in our youth? I think so. I, it's, it's it definitely the, the optics of it are worse and the, the feeling of it is worse. Are the policies worse? I don't know. I mean, but we have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene who, and Lauren Boebert, I mean, and just, just people who are, they will come on the house floor and just, there's a vitriol and an ugliness that I think for them is it's validating and it allows them to be somewhat vindictive in, in what they perceive is this cultural battle, but it's, they're fighting back against something that they feel is, is presenting an an existential threat to their existence. When you really feel there's an existential threat to, to you, there's, there's no reaction that is too strong. There's no reaction that is too um, violent. And if you got to get ugly, you just get ugly. And I think that's that's where we are now. Yeah. It's like animals are the most dangerous when they're into a yes. corner, right? And that's kind that's, of where we're at. And that's where we are. Yeah. Right there. And I think that uh, Trump, this kind of alpha man talking about making America great again and reasserting the dominance of this culture and these people, they just eat it up with a spoon, right? They buy the flags and the hats and the merch and they send him all this money and they continue to send him money. And if the liberals are the bad guys, then that means they're the good guys and it feels Mm -hmm. good to be the good guy, right? And then they try and fit everything into that narrative even when it doesn't fit at all. Like boring Sleepy Joe is also the head of an international crime family. Like I don't, you know, it doesn't (laughs) fit, right? Democrats are communists and Marxists and socialists. I mean, whatever works on whatever day. It just doesn't have to make sense. It just has to work for the narrative. Narrative right. of the day, right? So I know it is. It's very. It's it's a lot. It's a lot. I yeah. mean, clearly, one of the things you point out in your in your show is that conservatism is never going to be gone, and it's not your goal to destroy it, right? That in theory, yes. there is nothing wrong with pushing for smaller government or fiscal conservatism, but you point out that that's just not what we're dealing with anymore. What right. we're dealing with is toxic. It's a type mm-hmm. of sociological and moral entitlement that we have to take seriously. Mm-hmm. as a real threat if we're going to defeat it. 
Yeah, I think the days of of the Republican Party representing small governments right? <laughs> are probably are are over at least at least in you know this present age. That's not what this particular strain of conservatism is about. It's about um, more the moral moral battles because when it comes down to policy decisions when it comes down to actual policies they have no policies lot, they have no policy and mm-hmm. if they do propose certain policies they're really not very popular and a lot of the policies that democrats have proposed that actually help people are are pretty popular so they don't win when we when when the conversation is about policy, they just cannot win. So they have to keep these moral battles going because that's how they keep a foothold. That is how the, the wealthy and powerful stay wealthy and powerful. They've got to figure out how to get the little guy on their side. And if you can make it about, you know, you can stoke people's fears and get them riled up about trans people in bathrooms and, you know, all kinds of other silly things that that, that particular person would probably never encounter in their life. You probably don't even know, not you specifically, but a lot of these folks fighting trans people in bathrooms and athletes and all this, they probably don't even know a trans person, most of them. It's like, this does not even really impact your life. We're having theoretical conversations about theoretical things. Your child is not being taught critical race theory because that's something that's done really at more of an academic level. It's not even happening, but let's, let's get up here in the, you know, in the ether and just fight these battles that, that don't, that don't impact people's lives. We just had a Supreme court decision based on a case that didn't actually happen. You know, they just decided a woman who was never asked to make a wedding website website. shouldn't have to make it. And you're like, but she never was asked to. So why are we yeah. even deciding on this? Like it's, we've lost the plot in many ways. And like you said, if you don't yeah. have policy and you don't have plans and you don't have personality and you don't have ideas, then yeah. you have to keep everyone over here mm-hmm. fighting about things that probably don't even affect them. And it keeps reminding me of that yeah. cartoon where there's a super rich guy with like an entire pile of cookies in front of him. And then there's one white guy with a cookie and one clearly immigrant. And the guy says, he's trying to take your cookie, right? And it's like, there's one extra cookie. I have all the cookies. You have one cookie. And I'm like, that guy's trying to take your cookie. And like, right. so I'll make you two fight because I have it all. And I think, right. I think that's where we're at. And I think people who are traditional conservatives, people who really were of the old school Republican world, people like the Lincoln Project people and, you know, Liz Cheney and those guys, they're, they're in the pro-democracy camp now. I mean, I've, clearly mm-hmm. you and I both agree American democracy is in a really fragile state right now. Yeah. It, it needs all of us standing up to protect it. So I hope people will join you as you launch this project and really examine how this kind of toxic conservatism has really become so entrenched in America. As you say, mm-hmm. it's now the dominant strain mm-hmm. of conservatism and it's the most dangerous one. And I think knowing that and accepting that allows us to plot the best course forward, not just for avoiding you know, what could, what the crisis that could happen if we give these people power again, but also avoiding making the same mistakes in the future. So if people do want to follow your work and follow this project as you go along, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, I'm on all social media platforms. I am on TikTok at Dara Star Tucker, Dara with one R, Star with two. I'm on Instagram. I'm there uh, under Dara Tucker B. I'm hoping to get that changed soon. I'm on threads now as Dara Tucker B as well. Um, and I, I'm on Twitter technically, but YouTube, I tend to do some longer form stuff 
on YouTube and then uh, Facebook. I'm still on there and folks are, are very active and, and sometimes very awful over there, but I am on Facebook as Dara Star Tucker. So you can find me um, at any and everywhere. Yeah. And I highly recommend people do come and find you because your work is excellent. Um, and before I have you go, I just want to change topics really quickly and pick your brain because I know you have an anti-racism reading list on Amazon uh, yeah. that people can find on your link tree. So for those who are curious, which book would you have us starting with if we wanted to be better anti-racist? Because I saw White Fragility on your list, but I know that's a book that probably <laughs> everyone's heard of, but not everybody uh, that wants us to be anti-racist love. So what yes. would you, where would you have us start? I would probably start with how to be anti-racist. Okay. And I don't know if you have, um, if you've read that book at all by Ibram Kendi, how to be anti I have that book, Dara. Okay. Uh, but I was the idiot, the red, white fragility, right? When it came, I was like, oh yeah, I will read it. And then I was like reading all the anti-racist work and they were like, white fragility. And I was like, oh, damn it. Damn it. I did. I did bad. Um, but you know, like we're trying, right? We want to try. Yes. And so we'll start with how to be an anti-racist. That's a good yes. first jumping in point. And then yes. you have a whole bunch of other books. Handy. Yes, I have. I think it's still in my link tree, which is in my it is. bio. It is. Just yeah, no, I went through it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. And I, I need to continue to add to that uh, because, and I should have done it really a long time ago, but people do ask, you know, how can I learn more about this? And there are tons of resources there that I, I'll keep adding to as time goes on. But yeah, How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi is probably a really good place to start. That's wonderful. I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Dara. I hope people will go and check out your social commentary, but also your music. You have so much to offer us and I hope people will take you up <laughs> on that generosity. Thank you so much. Yeah, I like to like to surprise folks. You never know what's coming uh, from me, but I I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to have this conversation. And I love I really uh, appreciate the work that you do. I see you in my feed from time to time. I have a friend named Brian Alexander Morgan who posts your stuff all the time. Thank you, and, Brian. Um, he keeps you in my feed, and so I I love the way your mind works and the way you organize information and how plain spoken you are. And I feel like we do have a similar uh, vision to keep. Um, to keep people plugged in who don't necessarily have time to study. I did a video recently on soci uh, socialism versus communism versus capitalism. People do not have time to study economic theory. They're taking their kids to school. They're going to work. They're living their lives. And so I feel like your, um, you know, the, 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 the approach that you take is similar to the one that I take, because I'm not talking to people who are really advanced in understanding these principles. They just, they need the basics. They need the facts. They need something they can take with them in their lives. And so what you do is vitally important. So I just, I appreciate you reaching out and, and having me on. I'm really honored to, to be on your podcast today. Oh, thank you. I so appreciate you being here. And thanks to everyone who is listening and does want to stay engaged and does want to know, because it's really you that we count on to help us save this country in the end. So that was Dara Star Tucker, brilliant singer-songwriter who got out of her own comfort zone to bring us a perspective that was missing from social commentary, reminding us that the dominant strain of the Republican Party has taken a turn, that it's become toxic, not only to itself, but to our culture as a whole. I hope you'll take the time to follow Dara's work as she continues to unpack it. It's a beautifully produced project, and it's only when we properly understand a problem that we can ever hope to defeat it. I want to thank Dara for joining us today and you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Before I go, I just want to remind you to consider supporting this project by signing up to become part of the Politics Girl Premium family. As a member, you'll get access to ad-free episodes of this podcast, direct emails of the rants, discounted merch at the new store, hosted Q&As, an opportunity for in-person meet and greets. 
To subscribe, click the link in the show notes or go to politicsgirl.com slash premium to check out our various plans or simply make a donation. If you enjoy our content and think we offer you something worthwhile, your help would be so welcome. Also, it feels odd to ask, but liking and reviewing this podcast also goes a long way to helping the project. At the end of the day, the algorithm needs to know that people are listening. And sharing, liking, and commenting really helps push our message to a wider audience. The more people who know, the more people who will care. Thank you for listening. Now go out and make the world a better place. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.